Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Darren. That is the nothing personal word of the day. Yes, to me, he's Darren. You may know him as Darren Ravel. You may know him because he has 2 million Twitter followers. You may know him because he's smarter than just about any member of the media. Anybody, I've known him forever. And I'm lucky enough that he's joining us for the second Samson sit-down. How are you, Darren? I'm doing very well. Excited to be here. By the way, the tone of your voice sounds like you are grumpy from either quarantining, dealing with potential kid homeschooling issues, or technological issues. Which one was it? Probably all of them. I'm, I'm not grumpy. I'm just, um, I'm calm after uh, my body has gone through the event of the last hour and a half. And what, well, you just opened it up. What was the, the event of the last hour and a half that would hurt your body? By the way, this is an NC-17 show. <laughs> just trying to juggle uh, six, uh, two six-year-old twin boys uh, doing their work and my daughter supposedly working independently and my wife going out for social distancing drinks at 1130. Um, PM or AM? What time zone are you in? AM. <laughs> I love it. By the way, the rules are off. There are no clocks during quarantine. You're supposed to shelter in place or start social distancing. Is she doing the driveway drink thing? Uh, yes, this appeared to be a driveway drink thing. And social distancing here in Essex County, New Jersey, where we've had more deaths than the state of Texas. Uh, is is the real deal. This is not, uh, I'm sure they did not come within six feet of each other. So do you require any, do you have any rules of the house? Like when she comes back, she has to shower or did she purposely do this drinking while homeschooling is going on as a result of a fight or a bet or did she have no, to do something else? It, How did that work? No, it's just, you know, you try to give and take. It's, uh, it's been difficult because I think my job has become harder when there's nothing, right? Like I have to create things out of thin air. So I'm working harder to find stories. Uh, I think that the benefit that I have is I've always done kind of, as you know, the boardroom, the behind the scenes. So there's ne I'm never relying on a game to, to make sure that that's what's going to fill my content but it has resulted in me kind of having to work harder. So when my wife can get away, I'll let her get away. By the way, that's how we met. And I, I think that it's worth reminding people or telling people for the first time that I got into baseball in 1999 uh, when we started with the Expos. Where were you in 99? I was a senior at Northwestern. And so our background, I have a, a child who just graduated virtually 
or is graduating Northwestern in June. Uh, graduation was obviously canceled. Uh, and you know Northwestern is on the quarter system. But then you had an interesting career. We met for the first time. And I have to show you something. And I was going to wait. And I wanted to do a whole reveal. But there's a great story. Darren and I met. We uh he, he was a business reporter. Actually, you could say, like, your, your background, really, you were the business boardroom reporter before anybody else was. That was your opening niche. What drew you to that so early? Right. So, so, so the truth was that there was uh, Richard Sandemir at the New York Times. There was, like, Angelo Bruscus at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. There was, a, there was Alan Snell, I think, at the Tampa Bay Times. There was like five or six guys, and most of those guys had gotten the job due to the concrete beat, I call it. The city town, town hall reporters who were kind of like the legislative reporters who love sports, and then there was going to be a stadium that was coming into town, and they then said, okay, um, you know, we're going to report on this. I, in around 1996, maybe my freshman year in Northwestern, um, I was kind of reading the green pages of USA Today as much as the red pages. You know, the green page was section B and the sports was section C. So you had to get, in order to get to the sports, you had to read the business. Most people skipped over the business my age and I started to like it. And, uh, Darren, dad, do you know there's a, Darren, do you know there's a whole generation of people listening to this show who no have idea. no idea what you're talking about? No. Like USA newspapers. Today was a newspaper. <laughs> it was a physical piece of print. Uh, and, yeah, so, so essentially that was the order of the sections. Uh, it was National A, Business B, Sports C, Entertainment D, which is purple. It's seared into my mind. Remember what they called D? They called it the name Life. of the Eddie Murphy movie, Life. Yes, it was life. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I really got into that. And I, you know, my dad was a niche guy. He was a guy who uh, had an internship with a Nobel Prize winning physicist. He had a PhD in biophysics and biochemistry and a marketing degree. And so he was a consultant who every major medical company had to hire because the scientists didn't talk to the marketers when they were making a drug because they talked different languages. And my dad and his associates were the translators. So I had by osmosis or whatever you would call the like outside, not really knowing what was happening, but knowing what was happening. I became, uh, I was in love with a niche where you could say you were maybe the best in the world at doing something. And so between that and liking the business pages and being obsessed with sports, I was the sports director of the radio station at Northwestern. And my junior year, I started to do a business of sports show. There was another business of sports show in Canada. So I wanted to be able to say the only. So I turned it into the business of sports call-in show. I'm not sure anyone ever called in, but at least I could say only. Um, and I realized that everyone wants to talk to athletes and frankly, they don't really want to talk to you. And no one is talking to the business people and they'll talk forever. Um, so, so that, that really became, uh, you know, something that I realized, like I left class because Jesse Jackson was the, 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 um, or I left class because Ray Rhodes was the, the coach of the Green Bay Packers. He got fired because of potentially, uh, racial issues in Green Bay and, uh, you know, ran home from class because Jesse Jackson was calling my uh, 
the the dorm phone, which was, by the way, a professional message. It wasn't like, hey, it's Darren and I'm not here. Uh, it was it was an annoying. Professional Can you say message. those two words again for me, Darren? Did you just say a dorm phone? I think I you did. have to explain what that is, please. It's a phone in a dorm because we didn't have cell phones. Um, you know, it, the, the, the adjective was where the phone was because you couldn't move it. It was a car phone, you know. So, um, so hold, on, phone. hold on, there's a crying child. Uh, uh, okay, I am, I am, uh, listen, listen. Folks, this is live. This is how we do nothing personal. We I, have guests, we don't edit it. And Darren in the real world has two year old boys. And one of them I'm seen on video, very listen, cute, listen. totally crying. And all I keep thinking is, okay, listen, I'm I know so happy I'm not him. That's literally what's in my mind. I'm just, so just happy. Okay, that I'm okay. Not You're fine. Darren. Close the door, move on. You'll be okay. Okay. All right. Where okay. were we? Uh, that is not going to be edited out unless you force me to because no, that, that's, 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 that's fine. That's fine. Uh, so, um, so yeah. So after doing that for two years and really getting some tremendous guests, uh, ESPN came to campus and they weren't really hiring anyone. But luckily, it was a, a senior executive and not a HR person. If it was an HR person, my dream would have been crushed right away. And I got a 10-minute slot, and I said, listen, you guys need to cover the business of sports. And he said, why? And I said, well, I'm looking at your front page, and, and I printed out the front page of, I think it was ESPNNetSportsZone.com then. And, uh, and I said, you have $3 signs out of the top eight stories. I go, what's the common thread with those dollar sign stories? And he got it right away. He goes, yeah, they're, they're, they're AP wire stories. I go. And is it acceptable for you to cover baseball with, if you're ESPN, why do you have Peter Gammons and Jason Stark? Like, it, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. So why is it not embarrassing that the stories that you have dollars with uh, are, are, are wire stories? And he got it. And um, I convinced him enough to get an interview with John Walsh, the, the head kingpin at ESPN. And uh, had this interview, and my interview had a little hiccup, which was he asked me to tell me about the history of sports business reporting. And I went through it, and I, I said, you know, I've read every book, and I even read a publication called Sports Inc. in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And he goes, yeah, what do you think of that? And I said, well, you know, I think their problem was they, they wrote it in a sports business journal trade-like way, but put it on the regular newsstand. So there was kind of a disconnect. He goes, uh, you ever read the masthead on who, who put that together? I go, I, I, I wasn't paying attention back then. He goes, well, I was the publisher. And I'm like, whoops. Uh, I don't know if that's a misstep or... But it turned out I was, you know, 21 and, uh, and I assume you owned it, right? You have to, when you get caught like that and that's happened to me, of course it happens to anyone. I actually didn't know. I actually didn't own it. Like, I think it was because I was 21 and like, I didn't know how to, you know, I, I basically said, wow, that's, I think I said like, that's pretty cool because I, there's no way I could have been like, I mean, I just wasn't in the position to, when I read it, I wasn't caring about the masthead. So it was fine. We, we went on, I got, I got hired, um, you know, in the book outliers, um, 
Malcolm Gladwell talks about one of the outliers is your birth year. And Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were born in 1958, which meant that the first year that computers were in libraries was their freshman year of college. So they could futz around and do all these things and be pioneers. I was born in the perfect year to get the break as an internet reporter. I was born in 1978. When I walked into Northwestern in 96, I'm like, do I really need this email? By the time I got out, well, of course you need this email. And, and so much had developed in those four years. And the typical, the typical hierarchy of how things had worked, which is, well, you need to be a learned 45-year-old guy to get a job at ESPN as a reporter. Now they find it flipped and it's like, wow, there's this young kid he can write fast, uh, and he has the contacts. And for $41,000, we could actually put him on air and give him a chance. And so that's, so that's what happened. And, uh, man, I was on SportsCenter like three weeks later, and Kenny Maine is sitting there, and I am just like, this is crazy. You thought you had died and gone to heaven. I didn't realize yeah. that I was the exact median point between Bill Gates and me, right? So yeah. 58. 68. I was born in 68. You were born in 78. And I never thought of the year issue. But it is true that we all are a victim and a prize of how we're born, where we're born. That is no doubt. So true. I have to show you something here, Darren. You work for ESPN. And you contacted me and we talked sports business and you knew my background, I assume, when you contacted me or you just looked yeah. me up as the president of the team and said, I think I should see if I can call him. And we ended up having a lot of conversations, some on record, some off record. And you then, and, I, and I've told you this, but I'm going to now show it to you because we've never had a video FaceTime before. Right. I have a briefcase that I have carried with me and it goes, I've, I've replaced it. So as I got older, I changed briefcases out of law school. I had sort of that lawyer briefcase that was the hard briefcase that you bring into, <laughs> into court. Then it goes into the one with backpack and then it goes into the one with wheels as you get older and your back hurts. And I carry around documents with me at all times. And this became the subject of a lawsuit actually, because one of the lawsuits involved with the building of Marlins Park I was asked under oath about this black bag because in the black bag, I always carry the important documents. One document was from Steve Ross saying that he would not renew our lease. One was from Wayne Huizinga saying that he would not renew our lease at Pro Player. And so we needed a ballpark in order for the Marlins to stay. And I was asked, what else do you find so important that you carry in your black bag? And I sort of became known for always having this stuff with me. And one of the things that I carry with me, and I'm showing you right now, and then I'm going to read because people are listening, not watching, is this document here on stationery of ESPN.com. Get out of here. And the letters. That's the says, old logo. The letter says the following. David Dash, hopefully by the time you get this, you have won the World Series. If not, comma, I'm sure this will get you smiling again. Please call me when you receive this, and then you give your cell phone number, which, by the way, I was going to read on the air, but I checked first, it's and same. it's still your cell phone number. Yeah. As I'd like to do another business of the Marlin story for ESPN.com. Thanks again, Darren Ravel. That's awesome. You, that, have to black, you have to black that out and put that on Twitter today. So that's the letter, but... I didn't tell you what it is. I told you know what it is, but people don't. You knew that I'm a movie guy. You know that yes. Jerry Maguire is one of my favorite movies. Oh, correct. 
you sent me the things we think and do not say, thoughts of a sports attorney. This is the actual document written for Jerry Maguire. Obviously, Tom Cruise did not write it. Cameron Crowe wrote it. And it's the entire 20 pages that I have carried with me every day since you sent it to me. And this was during the World Series year of 2003. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I am, uh, as you know, or people who follow me might know, I am a, a aficionado of history. And, and I couldn't believe when I found out that they actually wrote out that entire memo, which is a, you know, obviously helped uh, Tom Cruise in his character study, uh, you know, to, 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 to go deep into, uh, I mean, it's amazing. I might be eating this pizza right now or something like that. I, I wish I had memorized that, but it's, uh, it's, it's said something about I'm in a hotel eating a, a pizza. In Miami, no less, yes. and, yeah. which is just unbelievable. And what's interesting, you know how movies are made, at that character development is critical. Just like we are developing our character, whether it's our social media character, whether it's the president of a team character, we, all, we are all characters. I think that we all agree with that, that when you're dealing with your crying six-year-old, your six-year-old looks at you like a dad, not as the character you play right. when you're doing things that you do on Twitter and, and blocking or not blocking people or yelling at Coca or not yelling at By the way, folks, Coca and Darren have a back and forth that is quite funny. And I don't know, Darren, did you know that Coca was the producer of Nothing Personal when you were dealing with Coca sort of like Nat? No. No. Okay, good story. That just ends there. See, there you go, Coca. I promised you I'd (laughs) ask him. That was the whole answer. This guy gets paid by the word, and he responded by saying no. (laughs) Thank you very much. Can I move on? (laughs) Yes. So this this letter from 03 was the old station of ESPN.com. And I've been thinking about sports and sports business. And I saw yesterday, and I wanted to talk about this with you because this is something you and I would naturally talk about. ESPN bought the rights to the Korean baseball organization, and they started showing that. And I was wondering why, and I wanted to think through why, and I have an answer that I want to talk to you about. And then I read that they're doing an hour of Peloton. They're literally going to show people on Pelotons for an hour of programming. And you talked about how hard it is for your business, right? To, you have to come up with content. You have to come up with stories because there are no games. Why are you not writing about the ESPN Peloton Hour and making lines and doing betting and things like that? Yeah, listen, I, I, have, to, I have to choose. My job is twofold. One, it's to do what I'm supposed to do as a journalist uh, in terms of journalism and what people expect as a sports business, sports betting business of pop culture kind of guy. And the other is what people want. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is uh, over the past four days, I've kind of been going back and forth because they're, uh, I've been covering sports memorabilia like crazy. And there's several reasons for this. One, I love it. I've been covering it forever. So I know about it. Number two, I can't believe the market that it has become. And number three, since people are actually putting their money in memorabilia along with the stock market, or maybe instead of the stock market, this is the greatest form of betting that is going on among sports fans right now. So I think I've probably kept my uh, eye on that. I don't know to my detriment. I know that I am a very statistically based and on Twitter, all the Jordan stuff keeps going nuts. 
You know, people say, how come you're still talking about this? Or I think I'm the most statistically based. I know that over the past 28 days, I've had 198 million uh, impressions on Twitter. I know what my top tweets are. I feel I know why um, tweets lead, lead to stories sometimes, stories some lead to tweets. So I feel like I'm, I'm, I think a lot of journalists, uh, unfortunately, think about what they're supposed to do for their job and don't think enough about what people want. Um, and so uh, I, I, would, I would say my excuse on not covering so much of the new programming is my focus on memorabilia and I'm only one guy. See, I was thinking I want to take it from a business angle and tell you where my head was and what my analysis was. ESPN, like other networks, CBS, just pick a network, TNT, pick any sort of over-the-air cable network. They've got to have programming because they make certain promises. I'm still paying people who have cable or people who pay for the networks. I have not gotten a refund from the regional network, Fox Florida. And I am paying to get programming. Now, I'm not complaining because I'm getting classic games, of which I was a part of, many of them. So I'm enjoying that. But ESPN has to deliver a certain amount of live, unique programming, just like Fox Sports Florida does. So the entire supply chain has been broken by the pandemic, and people are making adjustments. And what'll be what's interesting to follow from a business story, this is not necessarily a Twitter story, but the business story is how people are filling the requirements and whether or not it will be accepted by the consumer at the end of the day. No one's talking about that right now. Well, I think the interesting part is, uh, which I have not been able to figure out, is it a Peloton ad buy? They've certainly disguised it well. Um, But, you know, uh, and, and obviously you can't just say they're riding on bikes, right? So there's this, this kind of push pull here where you're like, hold on, my printer, my family printer is in my office and they're printing out various uh, uh, alphabets and things for my kids to color. Um, so listen, I, I, that would be the interesting part to me is, are they saying Peloton because it's unavoidable or are they going out of their way to say Peloton because they're providing programming? They're getting their subscriber fee. Is this a three revenue stream? And is this some sort of ad buy? I, I wonder that I could probably figure out, find out the answer. I can ask them and I think they'd probably have to be direct with me. I contemplated the first two. I'm trying to think of the ad buy side. So Peloton, I think it's more the ESPN is paying. So I have it as ESPN paying Peloton for the rights to this, to use Peloton as a, as it's programming the way they pay MLB to get the MLB package. I don't think so. I think there's a, there's a Peloton, there's Peloton instructors. Uh, I think there's very eager. I mean, there's some big names, Rory McIlroy and, you know, some big names there. I can't remember all of them, Bubba Watson. Um, I don't think they're paying those guys. I kind of wonder, I don't think ESPN's paying Peloton, but that's a good question to ask. So I'll look forward to seeing the tweet on that. I want to get back to memorabilia because memorabilia is such a huge part of, of my life. Actually, I have a lot of memorabilia. I've been collecting memorabilia since I was little. I actually, the saddest story, well, the saddest non-personal story is I had the greatest baseball card collection and they all got stolen. I kept Stolen. See, stolen. I, I'd, I'd accept the mom threw it out, but stolen is not, not something you can accept. I, I love where your head's at. And 
I was told by my mother and stepfather, who, by the way, is the erstwhile yeah. owner of the Marlins, right. who was my stepfather at the time. I had a, a, it was something called a toy chest, which was a, like, like a trunk at the end of your bed that lifts up and not like a suitcase, like a literal piece of furniture. And it was filled with baseball cards. I had basketball cards when the NBA did tiny little cards. I had the basketball cards when they had the huge cards. I had them all. I had rookie cards and I had them organized by team. I had them organized by year and it was all filled up. I went to college and then they were stolen. So the story I was given is that the toy chest was removed from the apartment, put into a basement storage facility in the building where I grew up and someone got into the storage facility where, by the way, there was a lot of really valuable stuff furniture, art, various things. And for whatever reason, my baseball cards were stolen. I, I think you should believe that story just for your sanity. I don't know. what I, I, This is thousands of dollars of oh, yeah. Not I'm not talking about the car value. I'm talking about the therapy that I have had over trying to come to grips with. Were they stolen? Were they thrown away? Have I been lied to? Is my whole life a lie? It's been a whole Megillah. And the problem is it got me to collect memorabilia even more. And now I well, have that, that's that's I was just going to say, I was just going to say, just like you pick yourself. Like, so there's so many people now, a lot of my friends who call me and say, I'm so upset. I was down this road and I didn't do this. And, and I'm like, listen, I, I, I was, because I'm a journalist, I've never asked anyone for an autograph. So I've actually had to go, you know, I was telling, who was I telling the other day? Oh, I was telling Michael Phelps. I was on the phone with Michael Phelps, who I'm friendly with. And uh, we were flex, talking. Flex alert, flex alert. Flex, flex. Yeah. And uh, he, he was buying some memorabilia and I was kind of advising him. And, uh, and I said, you know, I got a great piece of your memorabilia. I got, I got a couple swim caps from Beijing signed, blah, blah. He goes, I don't remember signing them for you. I go, I know I paid for them. So like, I actually, you know, I paid for, you know, I, I did so much with Kobe and I paid a tremendous amount of money for the Kobe stuff. The bottom line is that the people who call and complain, hold on, we're having another kid break in guys. What do you need? You need the paper? He's half naked, so you won't see that, but you're going to go get the paper? This is another son. This is the twin son, other twin. By the way, he looks exactly like the first one. No, 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 he's not. The first one had glasses. Yes, correct. Other than that, it's exactly the same. Not his tush. He doesn't walk around with his tush. You see the the beginning of the butt crack. That's what you see, okay? Um, Anyway... So I don't want people to think I just have my kids walking around naked all the time. Uh, you but, you, yeah. Someone home with you? No, no, no. I'm just is it, would that be weird? It's not no, like I just, 17. Yeah, I, I, guess, I, guess, I guess on a Zoom, you know, I trust you a lot that this won't be a video call. But, you know, you, you never know. Anyway, so, so the, the smart, there's so many distraught, distraught friends that call me up saying, I shoulda, I shoulda, I shoulda. And it's like, listen. I was on Michael Jordan in 1986. I got 20 autographs from Chicago Stadium by mail. I was at the hotels. I was at the hotels. I was at the ho- all the time. I had the signatures. I have some of the signatures. But every once in a while, you give up. 
you give up. You don't. You, you have different points in your life. Sometimes you think something's not affordable. This and that. You go back. So for me, it was like, you know, where did I miss? And I'm thinking about my same same thing. And it's like you just got to get ahead of the next curve. So while everyone's buying Jordan, I'm buying Kobe. While everyone's buying cards, I'm buying tickets. Tickets are next, by the way. Great framed, authenticated, sometimes signed tickets because of the nostalgia of guys like you and me and how nice tickets used to look and now they've completely disappeared. That is going to be the next great collectible. I have a full collection of Roy Halladay signed tickets from his perfect game. An entire stack of them that we asked him to sign. One of the benefits of being in baseball is I had an opportunity and I would do it. By the way, the memorabilia that goes on between clubhouses. Oh, I know. The the table, the table. Daggering. So I've told the story of how, you know, Dwayne Wade and what he did during his retirement where he would do the jersey exchange on the floor for the photo ops. That's all fine and dandy. What goes on behind the scenes when there's no cameras would absolutely knock your socks off. And players are really good about it. Some players, though, require an in-person ask. So I would ask for a jersey to be signed. Let's say I would want a Miguel Cabrera Tigers jersey. You know, I'd go talk to him because I knew him. Some players who I didn't know, they would just sign it or they would say, hey, have him come over and say hi. And I would always do it, no problem. What I found interesting is when players would ask other players for their jerseys, which was very common, but say no, I will only sign if you come to the clubhouse and ask me directly. A lot of players do that. A lot of people that don't even realize that the players have to pay for those jerseys when they do that. You well, know, who knows, how do you know that? Well, I mean, I know in the NFL you have to pay, you know, your 250 bucks for a game jersey. The team, I mean, I guess it goes team by team how strict they are. But, you know, now that they're doing these jerseys every game, you know, it's it's kind of been the common practice recently that you have to pay for them. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. 
So we had a rule with our players because we had several home whites and then alternate blacks and then the road teals. We had the orange jerseys when we became the Miami Marlins. And we would tell the players in advance, this is your allotment of jerseys. Ichiro is an example where he wanted a lot of extra jerseys because he was giving them and signing them for people. Everyone wanted an Ichiro jersey. And part of the negotiation of his contract, when he signed with us, he needed a certain allotment of jerseys that would be gratis and then would pay above that. It became did a they, did, they, did, they, did they come with a commensurate, and I'm going somewhere here, did they come with a commensurate amount of plastic bags? Um, indeed, they do. They are you do? Gonna the, are you going to tell the Ichiro plastic bag and, and the way he operates all his memorabilia? No, I don't know. I don't know that plastic bag story. I know the Asian plastic bag story. So here we go. Ready for this? So it's going to be different. It's going to be different. The giant signed Shioshi Shinjo. And uh, people go nuts. They go to the, I think this is after he's at the Mets. And uh, the, the um, Asian contingent flocks the official giant store at then Pac Bell. And uh, one guy comes up. And he wants 40 Shioshi Shindu jerseys. They have basically like 80 in the shop. Guy buys 40 Shioshi Shindo official jerseys at like 230 a piece or something like that. They get he gets the cash register, he's he's paying. And uh, they put the jerseys in like six plastic bags. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. I, I need a jersey, I need a bag per jersey. And the person's so confused, not aware of uh, Asian custom. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's, I'm, it's definitely Japanese. I don't know if it's Chinese. Uh, but the custom is if you buy someone something from a trip, it must come in the official packaging. Because without the official pack, that's what verifies it is real. As you know, counterfeiting in Asia is worse than even we have here. So the fact that you have it from the official giant store and it comes in that bag means everything. So the woman says, we have 20 bags. The guy wanted whatever jerseys. And he said, okay, I only want 20 jerseys. And that was it. He needed one for each bag because his gift wasn't good enough if it wasn't in an official bag. When I was in Japan with Ichiro, I got to know the plastic bag story, and I did not know that it was a nationwide situation. I did know, and I take note of the fact, that any gift, it's a, it's a, it's a culture of gift giving and gift receiving. Yes. Anytime you go to a meeting in Japan, you bring a gift, no matter what, when you are, we got a bunch of sponsorships by Sign Ichiro. We had them come to the States. We had like 20 gifts for each person. They bring their kids, they bring their grandkids, their aunt, their uncle, their cousin, gifts for everyone. They come with gifts for you. They come with gifts for you, your family, every employee does it. And they do the gifts by order. So as president of the team, I got really cool gifts. <laughs> and then, right, the corporate, you know, account person still got a gift, but it was clearly less valuable. But they were deadly serious, and Ichiro had very specific ways that the clubhouse guys could pack his stuff because in baseball, when players go on the road, when the team is done, uh, the clubbies are basically packing duffel bags for the players. Excuse me. And the duffel bags have all the stuff that's hung in their locker, their shorts, their shirts, their socks, their jocks, their hats, et cetera. 
Each row had a very specific way, as opposed to someone like a Stanton, where they you just stick all your you stick your hands, and the clubbies don't mind at all. You stick your hands in the locker, shove it all in a duffel, and that's it. But Ichiro was incredibly neat, and the other Ichiro nugget, um, he would never let anyone touch his bats. He yes, carried I've his heard, own bats. I, I, I have heard I have heard that before. Like on the plane, like not even his luggage. Oh, I have not heard like, that. Like the here. bats. I don't know when he flies commercially, but like the bats are part of his. You know, there's guys. Uh, I don't know why I'm thinking it's, of this now, Darren. No, but. it's it's it, it, it's like it's it's almost like the samurai sword. Like the warriors won't let. That's his. That's his tool. That's his tool, and it's different. It's people think of of a bat differently, but that is his. That no one touches what he gets his hits with. Like I get that. And it's, uh, it is his tool. I once asked him why uh, he did what he did with his bat after he walks. He is really the only player I've ever seen. He lays it down? Yes, he does. Yeah. And, and I said to him, why do you do that? And he said, and he basically, he said this in Japanese and a little bit in English, but that's how you respect what I make a living from. He never understood and would try to talk to the American players, the way they flick bats and the way they flick their gloves and all this stuff. He said, this is, these are the tools of my trade. You treat it with respect. And it's a very big difference between Japanese culture and American culture. Now, the interesting thing about Ichiro is sometimes I was like, he's got to know English by now. He uses that as, you know, he's one of those guys where you cannot go up to him in the clubhouse and just approach him. If you're an American reporter, he's got to have this translator by him. So I kind of wondered cynically, you know, hey, you know, he's got to have picked up enough. Maybe that's uh, uh, ethnocentric or, or not fair of me. But I, I always thought that he used that as a as a tool so that, you know, you can't do uh, you know, what you can do with other players who just walk up to them. That's a hundred percent, but it really wasn't about you. It was actually about the Japanese media. Uh, he had so much Japanese media around him at all times. People not, may not remember the contingent that would follow him from game to game. He's bigger than the Beatles in Japan and he would pretend not to speak English. So he wouldn't have to deal with yet another set of media because he just didn't want to, but his English is totally fine. His Spanish is fine. So he communicates with all the players on the team because he right. speaks so many languages. And it's funny how we think as Americans, because Barely anyone speaks English, forget speaking multiple languages. But in Europe, in Asia, people speak multiple languages as just a matter of course. So, yes, Ichiro does speak English. Uh, I need to tell you two Marlin stories. One, I'm going to give you a quiz uh, for, for one of my favorite Marlin's quiz questions. Uh, one Marlin uh, had the longest, tied for the longest single name, non-dashed, in Major League Baseball history. Who was that? I'm so upset with you right now. I'm having a great time talking to you. Why would you remind me about one of the worst signings of my career? <laughs> I just like, like, are, do, you, are, do you get off on that? Like, you're going to tell me that you're giving me a Jared freaking Saltalamachia <laughs> trivia question when you know very hold well. On, hold on, hold on. I don't think it's, I think you're wrong. Hold on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. This guy's thirteen. Beat Saltalamachia. We had a player who had a longer name than Jared Saltalamachia. Yes. Did we overpay this player? <laughs> I don't know. His name is Tim Spooniebarger. Oh my God! I wouldn't have thought of him. 
He was he wore num- number 91, which was the number of victories we had in 03. Tim Spooniebarger was the guy we got from the Atlanta Braves because Mike Hampton refused to play for the Marlins oh, in 2003 God. because he wanted to play for a winner, and he had a no-trade clause. So he said no to the trade to the Marlins. We called up the Rockies and said, find out who he will play for. He came back and said, well, I'll go to the East. I'll go East because my family wants to go East, but it's got to be the Braves because they're going to win the NL East. So we called the Braves and we said, listen, we'll pay part of Hampton. The, the Rockies are paying part of Hampton. Could you just pay a little stripple, like five or six million bucks? And you could just give us a bag of balls, but if it could just be a guy, a pitcher would be great, but don't worry. It doesn't have to be anyone good. And they said, how about this Spoonie Barger guy? We're like, great. And I, we didn't ask for scatter reports. Like we didn't, it didn't. <laughs> and so Wait, we got. Mike, to- by, by, by the way, for people who don't go back, Mike Hampton, when it came to talking about other teams, was the weirdest, okay? He is the guy that did result when Bobby Bonilla got his big-time made-off payment, so to speak. Uh, The Mets did get him uh, eventually and then got to the World Series in 2000. But Mike Hampton was famous for he and his wife saying that they were going to the Rockies for the school system in Colorado, the school system in the state. It's one of my favorite stories of all time, Darren. And it's a story I still tell when I'm giving speeches to people about baseball who want to understand the mysteries that go on with GMs and agents and players. And I try to explain that when you are Mike Hampton and you say that, you lose all credibility, literally all credibility. The school system in the state. All all credibility. And then the second Marlin story Uh, I wanted to tell you was, so in 1993, I was very excited uh, for the Marlins. Marlins, obviously the Marlins and the Rockies, their inaugural year. Um, I really started to hate the Mets uh, because I was a Mets fan, but it was, it not, it got so discouraging because 86, which is my last championship as a fan, uh, Mets, Jets, Nets, um, Islanders. Uh, so that was my last, my first and last championship as a fan. Did you grow up on uh, Long Island? I did. I did. That's why you're Mets, Jets, Nets, yeah, Islanders. Exactly. So, um, you know, I, I had, it, not only had we lost to the Dodgers in 1988, uh, but all my favorites then went to the Dodgers. So Daryl Strawberry and Gary Carter were then on the Dodgers. And I was like, this really stinks. Um, and so I adopted the Marlins. Uh, I loved the, the, the logo, the teal. Um, so I was, so when I was a sophomore in high school in 93, uh, I would, anytime they were in town, I'd go to their hotel. Um, and, uh, a lot of, lot of cool stories. I mean, uh, I remember shaking Benito Santiago's hand and it, it still today, I mean, his hand was the size of like a basketball player, humongous hands. I remember first pitch in Marlins franchise history from Charlie Huff, Benito Santiago. He was a very good, very good catcher. Now you're going to make me tell the Charlie Huff hotel story. Uh, so So one time when I was at a hotel, Huff is sitting facing, he's, he's away from the window, but the newspaper is towards the window. So he's sitting down in a chair so I can see what he's reading. And I, to this day, remember, because anytime a, a player says, I don't read anything from the newspapers, 
they're liars. Okay, but Charlie Huff, then what could he have been, like 37 then? Like, you know, throwing his his spitball, uh, what was he? He, he was a knuckleballer. Um, the headline says, Huff gets roughed. And he's reading it. And it was just an amazing fan moment for me because I got to see a player reading the news about him. Uh, and I, I won't forget it. So I remember These that. Players do it. They keep track. They, they, when, when you walk in a clubhouse in the old days, and now it's actually not dissimilar, the clubbies have newspapers all over the kitchen. Well, now it'll be different with social distancing right. and the clubhouse. Rules. iPads. There's newspapers everywhere. Now what they have is be, is they have the TVs on, on the news shows, like on the game highlights because they watch themselves on highlights. And then articles get copied because the players will go to the clubby and say, hey, was I in an article recently or what's the next article or what's being written about? They care, right. Aaron. They care. So I remember uh, I used to try to have conversations with people instead of just ask for their autograph. I remember I had a 25-minute conversation with Tony Gwynn, who signed like 40 of my cards. And then I had a conversation with him. Uh, and a conversation I had with the nicest Marlin was Scott Pose. Um, who didn't wow. last. Are, did are not, you sending your kids to college on those, on that memorabilia? No, no. To, to, and, and then my favorite Marlin, and I actually got a real jersey, was Jeff Conine. I will tell him you say hi. He is my friend to this day. We ran around the world together. We the did barbarian, that the, the barbarian himself. Yeah, real, really nice guy and always felt that he was on my fantasy league team every year and I always felt like he didn't quite get the credit that of how good of a hitter he was. Well, you know, he was drafted as a pitcher for starters. Did not I did not know that. Yeah, he I, knew, I, I I knew he was a champion squash player though. Racquetball. Yes. Racquetball, yeah. Big t- and by the way, just so you don't feel anything other than love for Conine, I don't know the difference to this day, and he's one of my closest friends and has been for over a decade. I don't know the difference between squash and racquetball. <laughs> it's just not his style. He doesn't talk about it. But he was a pitcher, became a hitter, and not the he's not even in the top 100 of talented players who I actually had as Marlins during my career. Forget in Major League Baseball. Not even in the top 100. But what he had that many talented athletes don't have is he had – a brain in terms of he didn't get inside himself. When he made an out, he wouldn't bring it to the field. When he made an error, he wouldn't bring it to the plate. He really had such a good head on his shoulders. And you'd be surprised how much that matters in terms of becoming a major leaguer. Not all the talent guys make it to the big leagues. Right. And then my, my, uh, my favorite, I went to Marlins spring training. Was that in Jupiter? Uh, it started in Jupiter only in 2004. Okay. Okay, so that's when I was in, I went there in, to Jupiter, and I remember uh, Chuck Carr, number one. <laughs> Chucky Carr. Chuck E. Yeah, his middle name was E. Right. That that's what is what he was called, right? Yeah, Chucky Chuck, Carr. There's no way Chuck, it's not Chucky like World Beat Bree. Yeah, that I mean that guy was like uh, he was like a chipmunk. The way he I mean how how small and quick he was. Uh, I remember that. I remember a lot of. Cool, cool Marlin stories. So I'm sure you have, I'm sure you have a million. Well, baseball itself, you're in it. You just like you, you're you do something for 18 years, you end up with stories. And I was thinking about sort of building. And one of the things that you learn when you are the president of a team, and you have to, you don't need to learn this, in my opinion, if you're a journalist, but you need to learn it because of 
when, when you're looked at now, Darren, truthfully, I'm not sure whether you're looked at more as a journalist or more of a, you're a social media influencer. You are you, from the memorabilia to the betting. I mean, I, I think people look at you more as that than a sports business journalist. And one of the things that we have to learn is how to deal with the hate because everyone thinks they can do my job better than I could. And they, they vocalize it. And now with bloggers and social media, everyone just can make comments. You have been unique in the way you deal with it. And I just was wondering if you could give me some clues, because as my following is building, I don't know how you ever got to where you got to. I don't know how to build in the way you are. But it's funny, dealing with hate differs from person to person. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think I've always been good at dealing with hate. Um, my wife thinks it's hilarious how, uh, you know, like in, in, when I was younger, not in high school, but before high school, I feel like I was a big nerd, never got beat up, but people called me chunky. I wore husky jeans and my mom had to explain, well, it's not that you're fat, you're just big boned or whatever. Like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's what my, the way my parents brought me up, but my wife is always so confused. She goes, did you? Like when we're talking about my daughter and there's an issue, she's like, you didn't have these issues growing up. I'm like, no, I don't remember any part of my childhood where I got so into my head or or anyone affected me. So I think that I, I think that I come in with somehow a unique talent to, I don't know if it's talent. It's just an innate kind of like, okay. It's a coping mechanism is what it is for me. Yeah, like, it, it, it's It's like, okay, I know who I am. I don't care what you call me. Like, I don't, it doesn't matter. Like, and if, and if you're going to get mad at me for, so, so I've probably been trending nationally on Twitter 15 times, you know, and man, when it, when you're trending nationally and you're among those top, top five, top eight names and you're reloading and you're like, Oh my God, this is crazy. You know, it, it, it's, it is nerve wracking. I'm not going to say I'm Teflon. But like one of the times I was I was trending was because when the day Bill Buckner died, which was a year ago today, I said, uh, like, rest in peace, Bill Buckner. I'm sorry that my greatest moment as a fan came in your greatest moment of pain. Totally genuine, totally something that to me seemed rational and. Twitter, the Twitter mob decided to turn it into, you know, this soulless guy and what you're supposed to say on the day someone dies. And you mean like talking about rape the day Kobe died and how well, people uh, who did it right. lost their mind, right? Got right. absolutely crushed. How much thought did you give before sending out that tweet? Almost nothing. Almost nothing. Because I didn't understand how anyone, you know, I, I, I just, I just felt that there was universal. Uh, Bill Buckner was very nearly a Hall of Famer. He almost had three thousand hits. He, he was. People think of him as the Red Sox, but like, I mean, on the Cubs, he was tremendous. He had, he had such a great career, and I, I do feel guilty that he had to move to Montana or Wyoming or wherever because because we falsely put the blame on him like we like we falsely put the blame on Bartman as you well know so you know that it just came from my heart and um uh, it kind of rolled off me um 
there are days where I, you know, I've probably sent out a hundred bad tweets out of 170,000. And part of it is I've, sometimes I'm not a hundred percent concentrating. So I make, make it an effort not to uh, be kind of half minded when I'm writing because it's going out to 2 million people and potentially can go out to, you know, my, my biggest tweet was went out to 31 million people. So um, what was the subject of that tweet? It was Colin Kaepernick re-signing with Nike on Labor Day. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I, I just think that uh, I'm sure of who I am. Anyone who hates me hasn't met me, I believe. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, can, I feel like I can deal with it. Uh, there, there are times where I struggle privately and I'm like, God, I shouldn't have said that or it came out wrong. Or, but the worst thing to be these days is in no man's land. The worst thing to be these days is a teleprompter reader news person who people don't feel passionate or hatred for. You want to be you. You want people to either love you or hate you, and not in the middle. And I'm there. I I probably have. I don't know if this is right, but I probably have sixty percent love me and forty percent hate me. And that's fine, but guess Except what? That changes, by the way. The 60% turns into the 40%. They turn into 60%. That's the beauty of what you do. But everyone, we used to call it love me or hate me, but no apathy. And that's yes. something that scares when you run a team or any, what I'm doing now with nothing personal. I don't want apathy. You actually are describing me. We're very similar in this way, which is why maybe we get along so well, because I also let things roll off my back. I try to be thoughtful with tweets, but if people don't like them or if my views on nothing personal, you know, I'm not sitting here giving you 45 minutes every day of, you know, vanilla. I'm giving opinions on things, having been in the room and Darren, that's what people want. Yeah. You know, you, you've actually, when I, when people ask me that question, you're probably the most hated person who's ever asked me that question. You have probably gotten the most hate of anyone who's asked me that question. So Listen, you've survived. Uh, you know what's right. And I, so I feel like you're like a survivor along with me. Uh, I would say that we, we have bigger problems than needing to survive the hatred of people who don't know us and who have never met us. And the biggest thing is the responsibility. And I think that that is, I guess I would end on this, Darren, that the responsibility that I feel I have and that I know you feel you have I just would articulate, by the way, I love the fact that we're still live. The kids are still there because your wife is still taking this full circle. She's still day drinking and I'm all in. But I would just say that the responsibility that we have is that we have to keep being out there with things that we're passionate about and believe in because people actually look to us to find out where neutral is, to find out how they should get and form an opinion. And that's a critical role. I, I will say one more thing that along the lines of be marching to your own drummer and doing your own thing, it is also very important and a key to dealing with hate is being genuine. If you are genuine, if you are the person you are in person as you are online and you're always the same and you have comfort that this is what you are, who you are, and you're not creating anything. People say, do you create controversy? I say, no, I'm a passionate person who has takes. And without takes, 
I don't want to live. This is how I lived. So I think a lot of people also have trouble because they go out of their way to have a take that they don't necessarily believe in. I'll never forget, at one point ESPN said to me, would you go on these debate shows? And I, would, and I said, well, I won't go on every day. And they're like, why not? I'm like, because I don't have anything passionate to debate every day. And I'm not going to sit and say, hey, you take this side and you take this side for the purpose of taking a side. So I think that if you're genuine and you are who you are, you deal with hatred much easier. Um, you know, people, are, people have said to me, you know, I feel like your, your value as an influencer has gone up in recent years. And, and part of that is I've never sold a tweet. I won't sell you a tweet. You know what? I'll leave that money on the table. Because if I don't, if, if, if I start making money off my tweets, now there's ancillary things like, hey, I'll do a speech and I'll give you a tweet or something like that. But my tweets are not for sale. And um, hello, I'm in the middle of an interview. Now the third child has entered. This is the eight-year-old girl. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I think that as people are not genuine and they'll accept anything for money, I will say, no, I, I, I ha always have to be authentic in every way. And the day I'm not, that's when I start losing. So I would say for people uh, who are listening to this, uh, authenticity is so important these days, especially as the percentage of people who are fake increases, your value of being true to yourself goes up. And just like that, it's business. It's nothing personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.